Well, thank you again, Wendy, and to our team who've led us so well today. You know, it's a lot of fun uh, spending a bit of time with the children. And over the last 15 years, I think I can count on one hand the number of times I've been able to get out to kids' church. Such is the nature of my role. Uh, and so it's a bit of a blessing being able to be part of doing something with the children. It brings back lots of memories. And uh, one of the memories that it brought back for me this week was how back in the day when I was in kids' church, which is going back a few years ago now, they uh, used to make awards. And I have here a Bible that was given to me on the 2nd of June, 1974. You can do the math if you like, nearly 47 years ago. Presented to David Hodgins for achieving 450 marks. Wow. I'm not kind of sure uh, what a mark was or how many marks. I can't remember how many marks you got each week, but uh, this revised standard version of the Bible was a treasured gift from the Sunday school. I have to confess to you, though, I doubt that I would have read more than one or two verses because the RSV is really hard when you're eight years old. <laughs> However, it was uh, awarded for those 450 marks and you can see the presentation page uh, which I have also carefully addressed even though I couldn't spell most of the words that I was trying to use there. Uh, this book belongs to David Hodgins who lived in this place, Victoria, approximately 25 miles from Melbourne, Australia. And uh, that would have been really helpful if I happened to lose that Bible and somebody found it. I can't, look, to be honest, I can't remember how the mark system worked, but I'm pretty sure there was a combination of two things that used to go on. One was attendance. You'd get marks if you turned up and you'd get some marks if you could remember the memory verse from the week before. And if you were diligent, there was roughly uh, one book a year to be received as part of that um, process. And I have to say that a couple of them I can still remember. One of them uh, was rather curiously titled The Curse of Craggyburn and uh, it, was a great, it was a great read. It was a story of a young guy, who, a young boy whose mother had died uh, rather tragically when he was small. His father had rejected any semblance of faith and uh, this young guy by the name of James discovered his mother's Bible which his father had done her best to destroy by burning and the remnant of the Bible survived and part of the book of James, which he didn't understand, wasn't written for him personally. He thought, James, it must be for me. Didn't get the, uh, the whole uh, scripture thing. He read part of that and his life was transformed by his relationship with other Christians. That had a profound impact on me as a young person. There was another one uh, which uh, I've got here too. Uh, this one, some of you might be familiar with, A Man Called Peter, the story of Peter Marshall. This one was awarded on the 12th of March, 1978, four years later, for 1,800 marks. <laughs> was I good at Sunday school or what? <laughs> and I heard a Thomas uh, somewhere... <laughs> <laughs> you know the um, no matter whether it was out of 10,000 or not I, I like this system 
because, um, you know, generally speaking, as a young person, I was fairly compliant. And so if you were involved in any kind of reward-based system, I did okay at that because I could do what I had to do uh, to receive the awards. And it's actually only in these last few years that I've sat there uh, and I've thought to myself, isn't there, isn't there something a little bit um, incongruous? Isn't there something that doesn't quite resonate with the system in Sunday school that we had, and I'm not criticising the people at the time, uh, where you have a rewards-based system at work to get you along to a place where you learn about grace. <laughs> Let's think about that for a second. You know, the key focus of teaching our young people is about the love and grace of God. So we're going to create a merit-based system so that you come along and learn about grace. There's something that just doesn't sit quite right for me in that. And I've had conversations with some of our team over the last few years about maybe we need to be looking at other ways other than merit-based systems. But I don't, as I say, I don't blame those uh, Sunday school teachers or kids' church uh, leaders uh, in those years because they were just reflecting strategies which are so typical of our world, aren't they? And we all buy into it. We're all familiar with it. How many of you go to work for a wage? It's a merit-based reward system. If you didn't get paid, you probably wouldn't go. How many of you, and we should try this one day, uh, pull out your wallet and check and see who's got a coffee uh, reward card? You know, after 15 coffees, you get a free one. It's a, it's a way of the cafe or whatever it is to keep you in the system. It's a reward. It's a merit-based system. Life works on these strategies. Most of us have engaged with this and so it should not come as a surprise to us at all when we talk about um, heaven that in our community and even in the church there are people who have this idea that good people will go to heaven and that's the question that I want to talk to you uh, with you about today the question is do good people go to heaven because it's not unusual for people in our community to say yes, and it's not unusual, and please don't, uh, don't misunderstand this, it's not unusual for people inside the church to act as though the answer is yes too. And I'll talk more about that because that's quite critical for us in a few moments. We're talking uh, at the moment through this month of January about silly things that smart people believe. And here's one of those silly things that smart people believe, that good people will go to heaven. And I want to unpack that this morning and ask the question, is this actually true? Because it is a fairly pervasive kind of an idea, although I might say I'm not sure that it's quite as common as it used to be. And I put that kind of overlay on it because I suspect that once upon a time when Christianity was kind of like the, the, the going religion, if you like, in the community, many people would have held on to this uh, idea. That's not the case anymore, is it? In an increasingly secularised community, a lot of people have actually fenced God right out altogether. And so the idea of God and heaven are not even on their radar. But the reality is there are still plenty that do. And in our conversations with our community, with our neighbours, as part of our work as a church to reach out into the community that we're part of, we may run into people who hold these ideas, ideas that are based on a number of assumptions. And there are a number of assumptions to unpack. The first is uh, that um, there is a loving, uh, sorry, there is a God. 
This idea that good people go to heaven is based on this assumption that there is a God. You've got to have that as your starting point. And if you have a look at um, Psalm 19 verses 1 to 4, for example, which say, The heavens declare the glory of God, the skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day they pour forth speech. Night after night they display knowledge. There is no speech or language where their voice is not heard. Their voice goes out into all the earth, their words to the ends of the earth. This is what we call general revelation or what can be seen or known about God from the creation, from the world around about us. And if you've got eyes to see it, you will look at the beauty of the world, the the intricacy, the detail, the complexity, and you'd say there's got to be something behind that, right? There's got to be someone who's done that. This doesn't just happen by accident. It doesn't happen by chance. It can't. There has to be a God. There has to be a higher power, if you like. And so as we think about this question, do good people go to heaven, one of the starting assumptions is, yes, there is a God. Another assumption is this one, that God is a loving God. Now this assumption is quite consistent with Christian theology because the Bible does teach that God is a loving God and you could infer that from general revelation. You could look around and say, what a beautiful world God's created. He must love us. He's provided so much for us. But I have to say that's uh, inadequate Christian theology if it's the only characteristic of God that you emphasise. If you say God's a loving God and that's it, you're actually missing the mark. The assumption that God is all but love has been mobilised in some of the more recent moral and ethical debates in our community, hasn't it? You know, I should be able to behave this because it's like this, it's a loving kind of a thing to do and surely God's a loving God, doesn't he love love? Hmm, interesting. Again, if you appropriate one characteristic of God to the exclusion of others, you're going to end up with a, a corrupted view of God. Because love that doesn't set boundaries or define limits or affect justice is not love, it's actually abuse. Just think about that. Love that doesn't set boundaries or define limits or affect justice or discipline is actually abuse. Some dear friends of ours years ago uh, had the blessing of children and they, as Christians, decided to raise their children in a loving home. You want to say amen to that? Amen. And uh, as part of their strategy for raising them in a loving home, they determined that they would never speak harsh words, they would never smack their children, they would never rebuke their children, they would never say no to their children and they would just raise them in love. (laughs) Why are you laughing? They came to a point of realisation very, very soon. I'm not sure whether it was about a week after the birth of their firstborn or, or what it was. Because I can tell, you know, having had children, you can see original sin in them right from the start, I reckon. Uh, they just have ways of pushing all the buttons. They realised they weren't raising angels, they were raising monsters. And in the parenting stuff that they did years later, they made that point. You know, love that doesn't put boundaries in place is not love, it's actually abuse. And the same is true of God's character. There's so much more to God than just his love. His love is fundamental to who he is. It defines who he is. And we need to understand that that love is not just some kind of fuzzy, woolly, you know, all-embracing, all-accepting love. It's a love that says, yes, And no, it's a love that says there will be justice, there is right and there is wrong. Uh, That's an important 
uh, thing we need to understand and blow up the assumption that is just it's just all about love. Another assumption that people make when they're thinking about this question, do uh, good people go to heaven, is this one. There are bad people who deserve punishment, but on the whole, most people are good. So just pop up your hand if you're a good person. There's two of us here. Well, that's fantastic. <laughs> you guys have heard this sermon before, maybe. Um, you know, when I was young, back there in 1974 or whenever it was, as children, I'm sure you did this too, you actually frame up a world uh, where you kind of define goodies and baddies, right? Did anyone ever play cowboys and Indians or goodies and baddies, cops and robbers, that kind of stuff? You know, your world's split up into the good ones and the bad ones. And back in those days, when I was eight years old, it was easy to tell who the goodies were because the goodies wore white hats (laughs) and the baddies wore black hats. And if during the school holidays, as was typically the case, you know, you'd watch one of those midday movies or something like that where it was, it was, it was goodies and baddies. You could tell who the goodies were and who the baddies were. I find nowadays if I'm out um, visiting at night or something, I'll come home, Diana might be watching something on telly from time to time as much as for company as anything. And I'll sit down and I'll say, so what's this about? Because I just can't figure some of them out. And then I'll have to say, who are the goodies and who are the baddies? You know, once upon a time it was easy to tell. The ones with the white hats were the goodies, the ones with the black hats were the baddies, but now I can't tell anymore. It's confusing because sometimes the baddies are actually the goodies and the goodies are the baddies and that's kind of how it works. And this actually defines the point that I want to make. You know, we have this idea that we can split our world up into these two what's a good word, these two um, objective realities, but it's, it doesn't work like that. Because if we parade around as we are inclined to do sometimes, thinking, you know, I'm good, but this person's bad, how bad do you have to be not to be good enough to get to heaven? How good do you have to be to be good enough to get to heaven? Just while I'm thinking of this, <clears throat> I reckon this is one of the great struggles that we have in the Christian church, as I alluded to just a few moments ago. This is not an issue that's just for people out in the community to think about. This is something that's very real for us to consider as well because I suspect that there's an awful lot of Christians who walk day by day wondering if in that moment when they're called to give account for their lives, let's talk really plainly and bluntly, when they die, wondering whether I will be good enough. Will I be good enough? Have I done enough good stuff to outweigh the bad stuff? And so live with this terrible lack of assurance, with this anxiety about what the future might look like. When I stand before God, will I have done enough? And it's exactly this thinking, this good enough, bad enough idea, this assumption that some people are good enough, some people are bad enough. Uh, It's deceitful, it's difficult. The Bible does not support the notion that the world can be divided into good and bad. Instead, it puts the case to us through the scripture when we stand before our holy, pure, amazing God, none of us are good enough. And that's one of the things we need to be really clear about in our understanding of of God's character. We need to be really clear about just how different God is to us. 
just how apart from us he is, how totally unlike us he is in the sense that there is nothing impure in him, there is nothing unholy in him, no thought, no anger, no jealousy, uh, nothing ungodly, nothing sinful. He is perfect in every sense, no corruption, no injustice, nothing in him uh, that uh, that is in any way impure. So how do we stand in comparison to that? Am I good enough for that? I had um, a cause years ago to do an illustration on uh, on uh, how we need to kind of measure up. If we're going to be perfect, if we're going to hit the mark, uh, this is going back years ago in a little church I was part of, we had um, uh, one of those whiteboards and I put a target on it because God said, you know, if you're going to be perfect, you can never miss the mark. You've got to hit that target bullseye every time. Every thought's got to hit the target. Every action's got to hit the target. You can, If you're going to measure up to God, if you're going to be good in the sense of God's goodness, you've got to hit the target every time. And so we had a whiteboard with a target on. I said to one of the kids, like we did in the children's talk this morning, um, do you reckon you could hit the target every time if I gave you a ball? What happened to that ball that we had? Let's just grab that. And uh, David, his name was, so he was a good guy, um, <laughs> grabbed the ball. It was one of those, um, one of those sticky. You know, the, have you ever seen those balls that have kind of got the little suction cups on it? You throw it and it sticks to the wall. And I said to David, if you're going to be perfect as God is perfect, you've got to be able to throw this ball and hit the target every time, dead centre. Do you reckon you could do it? Well, David was about seven or eight at the time. He thought, yeah, I'll give it a crack. And I thought, this is going to be fantastic. You know, it'll perfectly illustrate how we just missed the mark. And that's what sin is. It's missing the mark. So David took the ball. He threw the ball. Would you believe it? He hit it dead centre. <laughs> I said, that's fantastic, David. Well done. Because sometimes in life, we, we do good things, you know. We do things. We honour God by our thoughts and our actions. But if we're going to be perfect, we've got to do it every time. So I unstuck the ball and I said to him, let's see if you can do that a second time. So he took the ball. You reckon he's going to be able to do it a second time? He threw the ball. I could not believe it. Dead centre, second time. <laughs> like, that's excellent. You know, sometimes we have good days, don't we? <laughs> Let's see if you can do it a third time. Only this time I'm going to move you back about five steps. And uh, as you would hope, as I hoped, uh, he missed. And the illustration, fortunately the object lesson uh, was borne out to be true. If we're going to be perfect in the way that God is perfect, we must hit the target every time, every thought, every action, every moment, every day, all of our lives has to be perfect. Who can do that? None of us can do that. And the scripture speaks about this. In Jeremiah, for instance, Jeremiah says, the heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? It speaks about uh, what we in, in uh, Christian terms talk about, the depravity, the brokenness, the sinfulness of our hearts. Every human has a problem, the problem's our heart. In uh, Psalm 51, one of my favourite psalms, David, who having been confronted by the prophet Nathan, recognises that his sin uh, is actually not just against Bathsheba, he sinned against her but uh, he recognised that he was sinful at birth. This is a problem that has risen up from the very beginning of his life. Paul grabbed the same idea here in Romans chapter 3, verse 23. He said, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. James chapter 2, verse 10, for whoever, sorry, for whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it in the same way that my friend David was unable to hit the target every time. 
And then in Mark chapter 10, verse 18, the rich young man who ran up to Jesus and said, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus made the very important point that uh, you call me good, only God is good. The Bible makes it very clear that in comparison to God, there is no good and bad. We are called to do good works. We have been created by God and when God created us in his image, he said that is good, but we have all sinned. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. None of us measure up to God. The fourth assumption as we continue thinking about this question, do good people go to heaven, is this one. Uh, entry to heaven is by merit if we are good enough. I've kind of already touched on this. This is the idea that uh, if, uh, if I've done enough acts of goodness and that they outweigh the badness, then God will allow me through the turnstiles into heaven. And as I've already said, there's an awful lot of Christians who live with this burden on their shoulders wondering uh, because they hold to this even though they would never articulate it but hold it in their hearts, uh, who who live with a lack of assurance, live with the lack of certainty that uh, they will be with the Lord after life here on this earth. It's a problem that uh, has characterised the church through the ages too, incidentally. If you go back into the early church, the New Testament church, you'll see evidence there of teachers who came into the church and said, yes, yes, it's all about Jesus and this stuff, you know. It's about Jesus plus circumcision or it's about Jesus plus this or Jesus plus something else. In our age, we see exactly the same in some of the cults. They'll acknowledge Jesus, but there are other things that you have to do to earn merit to to be good enough. But here's what the scripture teaches in response to this idea. A very familiar verse here from Paul in Ephesians chapter 2 verse 8 to 9. For it is by grace that you have been saved through faith and this not by yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by work so that no one can base. How, do we, how are we brought to heaven? It's by grace, not by works. Not by what we do, it's the work of Christ. It's all about what Jesus has done, not what we do, which I alluded to last week. Uh, Paul was speaking to the church in Pisidian Antioch in modern-day Turkey uh, and he said these words, Therefore, brothers and sisters, I want you to know that through Jesus the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Through him, everyone who believes is justified from everything you could not be justified from by the law of Moses. In other words, you could try doing the law, you could try keeping the law, you could keep the law as much as you like, as hard as you like, but it'll never be enough. That's not how you're made right with God. It's by grace through Christ. And so the question, do good people get to heaven? The answer, no, they don't. But if good people don't get to heaven, how do we actually get there? Well, the usual answer to that question is through the redeeming work of Jesus. But I want to just step back for a second and ask another question. And that is, why did God create heaven in the first place? Have you ever thought about that? 
Why did God create heaven in the first place? One of the answers that uh, is typically given is uh, that God has created heaven so that there is this beautiful place that we can go to after life here on earth. It's kind of like, what's a good way of describing it? A a spiritual uh, Disneyland, if you like. We had some friends uh, recently who uh, came through Wodonga and uh, we had them here for a couple of days and so they said, what is there that we can do in this hot weather? We said, let's go out to um, to Bright, to the, the river out there, have a swim, play around. They had young children, you know, in the, what do you call that place out there, the water park, whatever it's called. And so off we went to Bright with the other three million people that were there at the time. Would have been good to go last week, I reckon. There was nobody in Bright. Uh, and we had a good time. You know, you could just swim, you could go on the slide, do whatever you liked. It was fantastic. They went from here up to uh, up to Queensland, to the Gold Coast, because that's what you do. And it's school holidays. And as they came back on their way through, they said, oh, my goodness, we went to uh, one of those theme parks. What do they, they call them? Um, Dream World or Nightmare World or something? <laughs> You know, one of the guys, the young son, was saying to me, I waited for two and a half hours to get on a ride. That's not dream world. That literally is nightmare world. Two and a half hours to go on a ride. This is kind of how some people imagine heaven will be. It's talked about in the Scripture as a place where there's no tears, no crying, no pain, nothing like that. The lion lies down with the lamb. There's some wonderful images of what heaven will be like but God did not create it so that it's some kind of spiritual wonderland that we might go and play around in once we have left this earth that's not what the scripture speaks about heaven being like why did God create heaven fundamentally the heavens and the earth were created by God so that his glory might be displayed there was a fellow who who preached back in the 1700s you will have heard of Jonathan Edwards one of the great American evangelists of the 1700s who was forefront of the Great Awakening. He preached and God used him and others powerfully and he wrote these words about, uh, about God and his revealing himself that his glory might be described, uh, displayed. Sorry, He said, God had a disposition, this is 1700s language, God had a disposition or a mind, if you like, to communicate himself to spread abroad his fullness. I love this next phrase. His purpose was to overspill his own goodness. You like that? God's purpose in creating the heavens and the earth was to overspill his goodness. I have an image uh, of a friend years ago who was pouring a drink and it was one of those drinks that's a bit like um, a bit like stew, you know, they chop up fruit and stuff and chuck oranges and mandarins and all sorts of things in it the drink had more body to it than some bodybuilders and he was pouring it into the cup and at the moment when the cup was almost full of the fruit juice a great avalanche of of fruit and and meaty goodness came pouring out of the uh, meaty is probably the wrong word uh, fruity goodness came pouring out and the cup suddenly just overflowed and it all went on the table and there's this terrible mess it overspilled it just spread everywhere and that's the purpose behind God creating the heavens and the earth that he might overspill his goodness that he might display his goodness to the world that he might display his goodness in all sorts of environments and contexts. And that's what Edward says, his purpose was to overspill his own goodness 
so his glory could pour out from himself in abundance. And so with that purpose in mind, Scripture speaks less of heaven as a place that we go to and more of heaven as being in the presence of God. It's not a location that we go to and say, well, here I am, I've arrived. It's actually being in the presence of God who designed it to overspill his goodness, to demonstrate his goodness to, uh, to all who have eyes to see it. Let me um, uh, speak to you about a couple of verses that uh, highlight this. Paul actually said this in Philippians chapter 1, verse 23. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. So Paul's got this vision, when I'm, not, when I'm no longer on this earth, where am I going to be? I'll be in the presence of Christ. I'm not going to a place, I'm going to be in the presence of Jesus. And the attraction in heaven for Paul is not the place, it's Christ. I think uh, this might be on the screen too. Uh, Paul said in 2 Corinthians 4 verse 8, to be absent from the body is to be present from the Lord, uh, present with the Lord, sorry. And nor do we go to heaven as though going on a trip. Jesus actually takes us to be with himself. And how does that happen? Well, he does it through his redeeming death. He brings us to heaven by sanctifying us, by making us holy, by equipping us to live an eternal life. Day by day, even now, for those who know him, he's at work transforming us. He brings us to heaven. Jesus actually brings us into his presence and preserves us on our current journey. I spoke about that with the children. One of the important roles that Christ has in our lives right now is the preservation of our lives. If you're familiar with Calvinist theology, you might know of that acronym that, the, that even Calvin probably would have cringed at, the tulip. The P in tulip speaks about the preservation of the saints which can easily be misunderstood, oh, sorry, the perseverance of the saints, easily misunderstood as, you know, we have to work and persevere, we've got to stick at it to be faithful. That's not what it's about. It's not what Calvin was about either, incidentally. God preserves us. All things are held together in Christ, the Scripture says. And as I said to the children, we would not last 10 seconds as Christians if God was not preserving us, if God's Spirit was not holding on to us. It's part of the work that Christ does in bringing us to himself. And the last verse that I want to refer to this morning here is uh, from Psalm 73, verse 23 and 24. It, it was written by uh, uh, the psalmist Asaph. He said these words, uh, sorry, he wrote these words, Yet I am always with you. You hold me by my right hand, speaking of God's work. You guide me with your counsel and afterward you will take me into glory. So even way back then, the psalmist understood that uh, the work of bringing us to heaven is a work of God. Do good people get to heaven? The answer is no. Sorry. Redeemed people, people brought by the blood of Christ, people who know Jesus Christ as Lord and Saviour, people who have been transformed, who have been baptised by that inner work of the Holy Spirit are the ones who get to heaven. We're going to pray and as part of our prayer this morning, let me invite you just to reflect on, on that critical question of assurance too as we've reflected on that. Because as I've said, there's a lot of people uh, in the life of the church who sit with 
a lack of assurance. Will I be good enough? The message of the scripture today is no, you won't. You'll never be good enough. If you're depending on your own work, you'll never be good enough. We sit here this morning dependent upon the work of Jesus Christ, that work that was done on the cross for us. Let's pray together. If after the service you want to pray with someone about this, if you want to know life, if you want to know the fullness of life, if you want to know new life, if you want to know regenerated life, there will be people here to pray. Let's pray. Father, we want to thank you for the message of Scripture that we find consistent from both the Old and the New Testaments, that it's never been by works that we were able to earn merit with you. For the law was given to demonstrate your holiness. The law was given to show that you were perfect. And even back in those days, it was recognised that uh, the keeping of the law was never going to be enough to reconcile us with God. That took something special, a work that you did for us through Jesus Christ. Lord, we thank you that you did something for us we could never do for ourselves. We thank you that in your mercy you looked upon us in our fallen, helpless state and you extended your grace to us. Lord, we confess this morning that there are times that although with our mouths we speak about your grace in our hearts, we hold fast sometimes to this idea that uh, we still have to be good enough, that we still have to perform, that we still have to achieve certain benchmarks or standards or performance indicators or whatever it might be, Lord, in our heart of hearts. We still do stuff in the hopes that we might please you and somehow earn merit with you. Lord, we uh, we pray that you'll forgive us when we have substituted that tawdriness for the beauty of your grace. We thank you, Lord, that uh, you have done the work and we are called to good works, but those good works are an expression of your grace in us. They're not things that are going to earn us points with you. Lord, I pray for anyone here this morning who has been labouring under this weight of misunderstanding, wrestling with this idea that it's only if I'm good enough, living without assurance, living without the certainty of eternal life, that you, by your Holy Spirit today, will speak and bring about a revelation of your goodness and grace. And Lord, if there are others who today here are hearing this message for the first time, first time experiencing uh, you speaking in their hearts by your spirit, the first time they've felt that niggling uh, that you are alive, that you're at work, that you want them to respond, Father, just lead them to, we pray, to respond today while the opportunity presents. Don't let those hearts be hardened, Lord, that are open to you today. Lord, we thank you again for your word and pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.